Welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, Rachel Maddow, The Daily Show, Ring of Fire, Countdown, Le Show, and The Colbert Report. But first, we're going to start old school. Uh, did I say old school? No. You know what? I, I, th- this is how I believe, okay? I'm from the old school. <laughs> Except this is not positive old school. It's the Republicans going back to that same stupid talking point on how the terrorists are going to run free throughout the United States of America, and uh, we got to run for the hills, and Obama's going to just release them uh, in our hometowns. Uh, we got Hoekstra. Elena Ross Lathan and Peter King, Lamar Smith and Eric Cantor all in this clip, all making absurd points. But Peter King is the one that drove me crazy and why we're going to play it for you right now. I got some comments after this video. Let's watch. I think it's safe to assume that we've only identified a portion of the people that have gone back on the battlefield once they have left Guantanamo. These are the kinds of people that the president is talking about moving it back into the United States uh, or moving or either moving them here, releasing them or detaining them. But just as we can't force other countries to welcome these detainees with open arms into into their homelands, neither should we force our citizens and our communities to do so. Having been to Guantanamo and just seeing the types of people uh, that are there, the way they abuse the uh, guards, the way they carry on, uh, listening to the people who do have to guard them and just uh, hearing stories of how uh, violent they can be. The thought of having these people coming back to any state in the United States uh, to me is uh, absolutely uh, wrong and disgraceful. Coming from New York, I have a particular concern because there have been reports that a number of these detainees could be brought to the Southern District of New York to stand trial, which is literally within walking distance of ground zero. It's within walking distance of City Hall, within walking distance of uh, Brooklyn Bridge, uh, police headquarters. Uh, and again, being uh, literally in the shadow of ground zero, I find uh, not just offensive, but also extremely dangerous. So We are going to have to release them into our communities after that six months period. Th- this is no, the one not. area uh, in which in where I'm going to take a protectionist stance, protection from terrorists. The federal judges may well find that they're entitled to other constitutional rights, which is going to result in their release into our communities. Because in World War II, I don't think we expected the, uh, you know, you, you, you didn't have the threat from homegrown terrorism. You didn't have, remember, these folks successfully attacked <laughs> us on 9-11. 3,000 Americans died. Putting these people in the middle of our communities puts those communities at risk. You know, I missed that last one from Hoekstra the first time I watched it. We didn't have this homegrown threat during World War II. Yeah, I guess that's why we did internment camps of the Japanese Americans, right? You moron. Okay. Now, look, we shouldn't have done the internment camps, but we were scared to death during World War II of homegrown uh, acts uh, of helping the enemy, whether it was the Japanese or the Germans, who, by the way, German-Americans are the number one largest ethnicity in America. And yes, we were definitely concerned about that during World War II. These guys are not attached to the facts, and they take enormous pride in their ignorance. Look, when I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, when I was a Republican, I, I didn't think that the Democratic Party was stupid. I thought, well, I disagree with them on this, this, or that, but 
they have a valid uh, point of view, and I think both sides had valid points of view. But one side wasn't like put their flag on the ground like we're the moron party, like the, the Republicans do now. Here, in this clip, here are the examples. Peter King says, oh, you would bring them near ground zero to prosecute them. Of course, because that's where the crime happened, you moron. That's how you prosecute people. You bring them to where the crime happened. Where do you want me to prosecute them? In Arizona? No, they hit New York and Washington. God, how stupid can you be? And he says, oh, well, they'd be in walking distance of ground zero. Well, are we going to let them out and they're going to lollygag over to ground zero? Or do the, you know, whatever other landmarks that he pointed to? You see, they don't get to walk around. They're terrorist detainees or detainees on trial for terrorism. We have them in shackles. What you don't understand, Jake, is that you know, they explode. If they get near ground zero, they trigger and they explode and it happens all over again. We have them under guard. They're not, and several times they just flat out lied and said, oh, and they're going to get released in America. No, they're not. Where did you get that they're going to get released in America? That's just not true at all. And then Elena Ross Lathanen says, you know, if we tell other countries uh, to take them and they don't want to, which happens from time to time, right? Uh, well, how can we tell our own country to take them? Because we're the ones who detain them. <laughs> what kind of sense does that make? Hey, I detain these guys, but I don't want to take them into my country. So then what do you want to do with them? <laughs> no, I want to keep them permanently in a, you know, no law zone with no rights, no trials, no nothing. And then they don't exist. It's okay. They're not in my country. They're not in your country. Well, that's how Republicans think because they have no regard for the rule of law. And by the way, Peter King from New York. Are you not concerned about bringing any of these people to justice? I'm an American, and I care about that. I care about it deeply. We lost nearly 3,000 people, and I want someone brought to justice. But this guy says, no, oh, no, we can't prosecute them near ground zero, because they might walk to there. They, they, they just, they're so ecstatic to be this stupid. Because they represent stupid people, and they say, hey, look, are we doing a good job of representing your morons? Oh, yeah, great, reelect them, go ahead. Because it didn't, it didn't used to be this way. But the remaining Republicans, unfortunately, are, are the ignorant people in this country. I, I, look, maybe I'm taking it too far, uh, but the word ignorant means not that you cannot comprehend the facts, but that you do not know the facts. And a lot of times, I remember this woman was quoted after the 2004 election of George Bush. She said, oh, I don't want to know anything about George Bush. I just know that he believes in God. And you know, any other facts, I don't want to know the facts. Purposefully ignorant. All right. I don't, I don't know why it got me so worked up, but it did, man. It's just, it's just they're not honest actors. These people... They cannot have gone to that press conference and meant anything they said. They know that the people don't get released. They know they don't get to take a walking tour of New York, and they come out and say it anyway. It's, maybe it's because I actually still believe, in, to some degree, in politicians, even if they're Republican politicians, that they actually mean what they say and have some degree of honesty or integrity, and that's where I'm going wrong. So when I see that they don't have any honesty or integrity, I get mad. When I should, I guess, look at them and be like, oh, of course, they're politicians, plus they're Republicans, forget about it. But I still get mad over it.
рождаюсь рассветом с балкона. Здравствуй, солнышко, дай пожму тебе луч, как замечательно, что небо сегодня без туч. Как чудесно проснувшись утром, радоваться солнышку, как будто в жизни твоей это первый рассвет. Один новый день лучше прожитых лет. Жемаю в объятиях жаркое лето, душа наполняется солнечным светом вокруг Вавилов. Но сердце поет о том, что любовь никогда не умрет. О ней шепчут волны, о ней поют птицы, она в Faced with overwhelming new declassified evidence that the Bush administration sanctioned and maybe ordered the torture of prisoners, the administration's defenders have just about quit denying that torture took place. And instead, they have taken up defending torture, most frequently using ye olde ticking time bomb scenario. You know how this goes. If you think there's an attack that's about to take place and you've got someone in custody who you think might know something about that attack, wouldn't you torture them? You know, but the ticking time bomb has never been the best argument for torture. It has that steep, slippery slope problem where you could just as easily accuse someone of not really wanting to stop that attack unless they skimmed someone alive or killed that person's family in front of them. I mean, where, where does it stop? Still, it has a visceral effect. It makes you feel scared just to think about that tick, 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 tick. And we all heard that tick, 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 tick on full display this week as Liz Cheney defended her father's position on torture. If you knew that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed had information about an imminent threat on the United States, information that would result in the death of your family members, the death of people that you care about and love, and that if he were waterboarded, you would be able to get that information and prevent the attack, you wouldn't do it? You would let him well, go ahead and launch that? the attack? How would, how would I know you that? That's if exactly I, if I... the situation these folks were in. <clears throat> In today's Senate hearing uh, about torture, the ticking time bomb argument sort of blew up, sort of ended. As we mentioned earlier, one of the star witnesses today was former FBI interrogator Ali Soufan. He testified from behind a screen that he got valuable information from Abu Zubaydah using conventional, legal, proven interrogation methods. Then somebody else came in and started using those enhanced interrogation force-based techniques, and that's when Mr. Zubaydah clammed up. So why waste time when the time bomb's ticking, doing things that make the prisoners stop talking? Tick, 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 tick. Ali Soufan also laid out why the techniques the CIA wanted to use would be useless in a ticking time bomb scenario. The CIA's sleep deprivation plan, for example, intended to keep a prisoner from sleeping for, I don't know, seven and a half days. The argument that waterboarding works quickly falls apart on the fact that it was used 183 times in one month on one suspect. That's slow, that's not quick. Tick, 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 tick. Still, Republican Senator Lindsey Graham plowed right ahead with the ticking time bomb argument today You anyway. know a gentleman named John K-I-R-I-A-K-O-U? Me? Yeah. Myself? The yeah. question? Uh, no, I don't know him. He said that uh, they waterboarded the guy and he broke within 35 seconds. Last week he retracted that and he said he was misinformed and actually okay. he was not at the Abu Zubaydah uh, location. Okay, so he's a, that he just He retracted that, yes sir. Oh, Senator Graham apparently unaware that John Kirikou's claims in an ABC News report have been debunked and retracted. 
The ticking time bomb argument is over. When you hear it on TV, hit mute. When someone presents it to you, pat that person on the shoulder and say, sorry, let's talk about light rail. I mean, be polite about it, of course, but you're not talking with somebody who's having an honest argument about torture. Joining us now is Malcolm Nance, former master instructor and chief of training at the Navy's Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape School, better known as the SEER School. He's now a U.S. government consultant on terrorism and counterterrorism. Mr. Nance, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Larry. Um, when you heard Ali Sufan testify about his interrogation techniques as an FBI experienced interrogator versus these force-based techniques that were reverse engineered from some of the SEER techniques, does that resonate with you in terms of what you understand about the appropriateness of those techniques as interrogation methods? Well, it resonates with me for a, a very particular reason. One, the SEER program was started in the 1950s exactly because these techniques were being used against American servicemen. The SEER program and all the techniques that were carried out that we call enhanced interrogation techniques, these are reverse engineered from the communists, from totalitarian states and the Nazis. So, of course, everything that he said about that uh, about bringing the prisoner in, interrogating the prisoner, and then him becoming recalcitrant and resistant, that's exactly what we want. And of course, Al-Qaeda, of course, won by that because they defeated the purpose of all the interrogations. In terms of um, the argument that seared-based techniques, these techniques reverse-engineered, as you say, from what was done by totalitarian regimes, reverse engineering figured out in the 50s, um, the argument has been made that because we do it to American troops as part of training, it can't be torture, because then people like you, who was an instructor at SEER, could be charged with torture. That, that's ridiculous on its face. Listen, there's a whole class of, of people I call now torture apologists, and their full-time job is to go out and find spurious arguments in order to justify exactly why they violated, uh, you know, U.S. legal code and, of course, the standing order from General George Washington to treat prisoners uh, with dignity. Uh, and so it's ridiculous. What we are doing is we are allowing a, a service member the opportunity to practice in a controlled environment over a few moments uh, how to behave and how to react in order to act like Abu Zubaydah, in order for them to become uh, resistant and for them to uh, make sure that the techniques that are being applied to them don't work. On the issue of, of sleep deprivation specifically, um, sleep deprivation is one of those things that um, I, I think is the t at the top of the slippery slope when people start talking about torture. Well, sure, you don't want to get down to things like waterboarding or pulling people's fingernails out, but a little sleep deprivation never really hurt anybody. Uh, we've heard testimony that maybe some forms of mild sleep deprivation were used even before there were any new legal justifications uh, ginned up in Washington to explain that. What do you think about sleep deprivation in terms of its effect on prisoners in custody, whether it should be seen as part of torture. Well, these are softening techniques. All they did was they decided to bring the person up, keep him awake, whether they were going to walk him around, whether they were going to stand him up, whether they were going to give, give, give him loud music. And what you're doing is you're softening that person. You're making that person, putting him into a state where you think he's going to be susceptible to answer questions. In fact, he's going to, it's going to be even more difficult to get him to answer questions. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, you hit, hit him with a harsh interrogation technique right after that, whether it's slapping or walling or 
uh, some other physical harm or waterboarding, and you think that's going to snap them out of it. Well, in fact, that's the state we want you in. That's mm. that's where you're going to be least susceptible to answer honestly. You'll you'll answer gibberish. That's the that's the the situation we want you in if you are an American and we want you to absolutely. Be, yeah. So, well, in in the case then of so I guess we can sort of get there. We can follow the math problem in the case of an actual ticking time bomb scenario, which is a faulty premise because things don't work out this way in the real world. Would you do sear these techniques on a prisoner in that in that scenario? No, I, of course Any not. Of them. No, of course not, because one, it defeats the ticking time bomb scenario in that all the prisoner has to do is not answer the question. Or better yet, the prisoner will lie. And once the prisoner lies, especially with Al-Qaeda members, let me tell you something, their ideology, uh, they're, they're, they have a, a concept within their ideology called al-Wara wal-Bara, and that is absolute devotion to their God, but absolute disavowal and hatred of anything that's not their God. Therefore, anything that they do to foil you is well within their plan, and they, they take great pride in that. And I'm sure when he was brought back to his little cage or to his uh, holding cell, he saw every time that he defeated us, every time he didn't get an answer out of us or got some gibberish out of us, he That's saw that as a victory. Yeah. So you got to outwit him. Well, we're, well, what we've done is we've created Al-Qaeda Seer School for them. Malcolm Nance, former master instructor and chief of training at Navy Sear School. I've talked to you a few times over the years about this, and every time um, I'm very grateful to have the chance to ask you these questions. So thank you. So now you pour your heart out, you say to me, you're far out. Not about to lie down for your cause. But you don't pull my strings, cause I'm a better man. Her mindset tempered furs and spangled boots Looks are deceiving, make me believe it And these Tyson paper dreams Paper dreams, honey, yeah So won't you go far, tell me you're a keeper Not about to lie down for your cause And you don't pull my strings Cause I'm a better man, moving on to better Like Vice President Richard Cheney has been on television so much you think he was promoting a new sitcom. Which brings us to our brand new segment. send your letters to Standards and Practices Comedy Central care of Brian Williams, NBC 99. <laughs> or simply send an email to brianwilliamsyahoo.com. All right. <laughs> Vice President Cheney X, why the ubiquity all of a sudden? If I don't speak out, uh, then where do we find ourselves, Bob? Then, then the critics uh, have a free run and there isn't anybody there on the other side to, to tell the truth. <laughs> the truth is out there. And it's alone and scared and sleeping under an overpass. Experimenting with drugs. People for crack. 
Come home, truth. Daddy Cheney forgives you. But there was one thing Daddy Cheney could not forgive, an administration that was keeping their campaign promises. They campaigned against these policies across the country, and then they came in now, and they have tried uh, very hard to uh, undertake actions that I just fundamentally disagree with. At long last, Mr. President, have you no sense of deceptiveness? <laughs> well, Bob Schieffer's got a big opportunity. Cheney's like a comet. Once every 17 years, he appears to come out and speak truth. If Schieffer doesn't ask him something juicy, we're going to have to wait until the Timberlake administration. <laughs> it will happen. <laughs> Mr. Schieffer, I just want to say good luck. We're all counting on you, sir. Do you have any regrets whatsoever about any of the methods that were taken? Okay, I know this one. Um, I'm just going to write down my answer on this piece of paper, see if I'm right. Go. Uh, no regrets. I had sometimes at night when the demons visit and taunt my sense of certainty... Awakening within the deep crevices of my cerebral cortex, the silent screams of good intentions gone awry. Perhaps then I see not a bad man, but a damned man. And then I wake up and look down at my SpongeBob SquarePants duvet and realize I'd been right all along. Did Bush know about any of this stuff? How much did President Bush know specifically about the methods that were being used? Did President Bush know everything you knew? Um, I certainly, uh, yeah, have every reason to believe he knew, uh, he knew a great deal about the program. He, he basically authorized it. I mean, this was a, a presidential-level decision, and the decision went to the president. He signed off on it. That was weird. Sure, he knew. I mean, they, you know, I don't know if he knew. I mean, he signed it. Did he know he was signing it? Did he, did he think he was signing a bill declaring baseball is awesome? What? What happened? I
first question that many Americans asked after Barack Obama won the presidency was whether or not his administration would move forward with criminal investigations followed by prosecutions of people in the Bush administration. While the majority of Americans support investigations into the crimes of the last eight years, the Obama administration seems reluctant to proceed. But luckily for those of us who are fans of justice, we've got senators like Pat Leahy who refused to let these criminals off the hook. Earlier this week, Bobby had the opportunity to speak with Senator Leahy about his efforts. So let's listen to what he had to say. We're joined by an old friend and the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Patrick Leahy, who announced on February 25th that the committee will hold hearings to explore ideas on how best to establish a commission to examine the past national security policies. Now, this week, Senator Leahy, there was a front-page article in the New York Times that I know that you must have read that talked about a series of nine memos that have now been released by the Barack Obama White House in its efforts to provide greater transparency to the American people. And these efforts are really they are really shocking, efforts that these memos that were written by the Bush administration, and it's almost, if you take them all together, a coup d'etat against the American democratic system. It's also a coup d'etat against our, our Constitution. These Many of these memos are the ones I subpoenaed last year. They, they tried to block it. We, we knew from, our, from the uh, investigations my Judiciary Committee had done and from the hearings I'd had that this is basically what the memos were going to say. But now that we see them, they're even more, even more shocking to see. We, uh, we looked at one of the memos written by former Office of Legal Counsel Deputy John Yu that actually tried to gut the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution. Then you put that on top of the fact that the CIA destroyed 92 tapes about their harsh interrogation procedures, uh, many of which felt were actually torture. I, I think this shows why the Bush administration tried to uh, stonewall all of our subpoenas, all of our efforts at discovery, because they had things that they just knew could not stand the light of day. I mean, among the things that they talked about was, um, as you say, a, a ban on the or the abandonment of the Fourth Amendment's ban on unreasonable searches and seizures. They said that privacy rights are illusory, essentially, essentially when America is under attack by terrorists, as we are today in their view. They said First Amendment, this is a quote, First Amendment speech and press rights may also be subordinated to the overriding need to wage war successfully, end quote, adding that, quote, the current campaign against terrorism may require even broader exercise of federal power domestically. Among the things they talked about was the assertion of the legality of using the U.S. military as an enforcement agency within the United States to make raids on people's houses, warrantless raids to eavesdrop well, they, on you people. You know, the, the, <laughs> the, the thing is, they talk about waging war on terrorism. They're actually waging war on the Bill of Rights. Uh, this is an unprecedented uh, grasp of power to say, well, there's, it's a war on terrorism. You know, come on. The Bush administration had been warned about these attacks before September 11th. They did nothing. In fact, on September 10th, they had a proposal to cut back considerably on our funding of counterterrorism. 
And that shows you about how how prepared they were making the United States. Afterward, it was it was constantly, oh, we got to do more and more to protect ourselves. Well, the best thing to do is use the tools you have. But there's going to be terrorist attacks against uh, most of major nations. There are, there were yesterday, and I suspect there will be tomorrow. That doesn't mean we give up those same rights in the Constitution that we fought a a war to obtain, uh, our Revolutionary War. We fought two world wars uh, to protect and to suddenly give them over because of some hijackers who got hold of airplanes and did a terrible thing. It's impossible to overstate how much of a mistake that make. Basically, what you'd say is, boy, did the terrorists win. They shredded our Constitution. Something that uh, World War II couldn't do, World War I couldn't do, uh, something that we've protected ever since the Revolutionary War, but uh, some terrorists were able to shred it. I, I'm not prepared to see that at all. I'm prepared to see have better intelligence, uh, work with our allies to uh, go after terrorists, uh, use our use our military in a responsible way, something that actually has an effect, unlike what the Bush administration did when they had Osama bin Laden cornered. They took their best forces out of there, we now know, and to send them into a war in Iraq where, where in Iraq posed absolutely no threat to the United States. Uh, I'm not willing to see our Constitution torn up just to cover for the horrible mistakes made by the Bush administration. Well, you know, these guys often say, well, we have to do this because we've never been under such terrible threat before. But I remember, and you remember, when I was a little kid and living in Washington, D.C., and people were digging uh, bomb shelters, and we had to do duck and cover drills at school, and we had thousands of nuclear-tip warheads pointed to us from the Soviet Union and even one point Cuba, you know, a couple minutes away from thermonuclear war that would have obliterated entire cities, uh, exterminated large parts of our population. And we never resorted to the eavesdropping on tens of thousands of American citizens, torturing people, uh, doing these extraordinary renditions. Um, I remember during the Vietnam War when my father learned that we were handing prisoners over to the South Vietnamese Army, which was our ally, and who we were virtually running. And he said, Americans can't do that because they're going to mistreat them, and that's just going to turn more people against them. That's exactly what Eric Holder's response was, which I, I was gratified by. He said, quote, and he's the new attorney general, of course, too often over the past decade, the fight against terrorism has been viewed as a zero-sum battle with our civil liberties. Not only is that thought misguided, I fear that it actually does more harm than good. And that's true, isn't it, Senator Leahy? Well, I, I think it is true. You know, the irony is if we if we go and shred our Constitution, it's almost like the it's almost like the Thomas More play in Man for All Seasons, where his protege, who is now Roper, now is going to be Attorney General, and he said that yeah, he said he, he cut he, down he, all the laws of England in to, order to, to get at the devil. Yeah, to get at the <laughs> devil. But then when the devil turns on you, what will you hide behind, Roper? All the all the laws now being flat, and that's that's these laws protect us. We have a tremendous military. We uh, instead of wasting money on trying to subvert our laws, find a better way 
to improve our intelligence, but also to improve our work with our allies. You know, a lot of this that happened during the uh, during that time when we took the attitude, you're either with us or you're against us, and it turned off a lot of our allies around the world. Uh, th- those are the things that ended up making us uh, more vulnerable. I- I'll give you one example. The idea of having the secret torture. Uh, Abu Ghraib was a recruiting poster for al-Qaeda. As soon as those pictures went out, that did far, far, far more damage to us than anything else we could have done. And because we didn't uphold our own rule of law. You know, the United States has always been a beacon to other countries, especially those that are uh, in repressive governments, because we do follow our rule of law. What I what is uh, driven me up the wall the last few years is to be lectured by countries like uh, China and Russia and others, because what we're doing, I I mean, this is Alice in Wonderland, and none of these things that we did, uh, Bob, the most important thing to remember, none of these subversions of our Constitution made us any safer. And many would argue it made us less safe. Another one of the memos I just want to Mentioned because of the it, it's just so outrageous um, that Jonathan Yu recommended to the president of the United States that he had the unilateral power to to abrogate or to break any treaty with any other nation in the world, including the Geneva Convention. Yeah, that he could is, just walk away from it. It's just it's a it's anarchy and it's a it's a uh, kind can of. Can you imagine how we would react if we had any other country that we had negotiated a treaty with and we were relying on? If they took that same attitude, we'd say how irresponsible, how wrong, how unprecedented. It is very similar to at the after the Watergate and the Frost interviews when Nixon said. It's not against the law when the president does it. Well, in our country, nobody's above the law. You're not, I'm not, and the president's not. Thanks for what you're doing, and keep up the good fight, and let's make sure that these guys have to face some kind of truth and, and reconciliation or truth and consequences. I intend, to make sure, <laughs> I intend to make sure they do. Look forward to seeing you again soon.
from New York. Two steps forward, one step back. Possibly even a zero-sum equation when it comes to the process of shining a bright light into the many dark corners of the Bush administration's torture program. Our fifth story on the countdown, a Senate Judiciary Subcommittee holding its first hearing on the euphemous extreme interrogation methods employed by the previous administration. The chairman of today's proceedings, Senator Whitehouse of Rhode Island, to join us presently. The current president, meanwhile, announcing that he will now fight the release of hundreds of photographs documenting the abuse of detainees in U.S. military custody. Mr. Obama today ordering the Justice Department to try to block the release of hundreds of photos, like those from Abu Ghraib, that show abuse by military captors in Iraq and Afghanistan. The Pentagon having gathered the pictures while investigating the allegations of abuse, the ACLU having sued to get them. Last month, the president having agreed to their release after the federal courts ordered that they be made public. This afternoon, Mr. Obama announcing the reversal of that decision with a variation of the few bad apples defense. The individuals who were involved uh, have been identified and appropriate actions have been taken. It's therefore my belief that the publication of these photos would not add any additional benefit to our understanding of what was carried out in the past by a small number of individuals. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, dramatic testimony about the questioning of Abu Zubaydah. You will recall a top al-Qaeda figure who was captured in Pakistan in 2002 and who gave up valuable information. More on how it was elicited in a moment. The former top lawyer at the State Department, Philip Selikow, who raised objections about the supposed legality of the Bush administration torture program and having had those objections ignored, today hinting at what could be the next bombshell memo to be declassified. His own. My view was that I could not imagine any federal court in America agreeing that the entire CIA program could be conducted and it would not violate the American Constitution. So I distributed my memo analyzing these legal issues to other deputies at one of our meetings in February 2006. I then took off to the Middle East on other work. When I came back, I heard the memo was not considered appropriate for further discussion and that copies of my memo should be collected and destroyed. That particular request, passed along informally, did not seem proper, and I ignored it. This particular memo has evidently been located in state's files and is being reviewed for declassification. Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, the ranking Republican on this committee, calling the hearing a political stunt and all but treating witnesses who disagreed with him as hostile. Of course, when one of those witnesses interrogates suspected terrorists for a living, he probably knows how to deal with the likes of a senator. I mean, one of the reasons these techniques have survived for about 500 years is apparently they work. Because, sir, there's a lot of people who don't know how to interrogate, and it's right. easy to hit somebody than outsmart them. That voice belonging to former FBI interrogator Ali Soufan, not shown in your picture, testifying behind that screen to protect his identity. During questioning by Senator Whitehouse, Mr. Soufan describing how the interrogation of Abu Zubaydah through legal, non-torturous means obtained valuable intelligence within minutes. Minutes. Your testimony indicates that within the first hour of your interrogation of him, you had gained important actionable intelligence. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Including the previously unknown information to that point anyway that Khalid Sheikh Mohammed was the mastermind behind the 9-11 attacks, all elicited before private contractors came in and started torturing Mr. Zubaydah. And all of this happened before the uh, CIA CTC team and the private contractors arrived, correct? Yes, sir. And then they arrived, and uh, immediately you say on the instructions of the contractor, harsh techniques were introduced, uh, which did not produce results as Abu Zubaydah shut down and stopped talking.
correct? Correct, sir. Senator Whitehouse joins us now. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for your time today. I'm very happy to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. Today you spoke of the Bush administration's lies. Uh, you spoke of its near avalanche of falsehood about torture working. This point has been made a lot recently. Does this kind of undermine the, the larger point, perhaps, that it doesn't matter whether or not it works, that it is illegal? There's so many points here, Keith, that it's hard to pick them all apart. Uh, there's the point that it's wrong. Mm -hmm. There's the point that it's ineffective. There's the point that it's illegal. There's the point that in order to get there, they had to disrupt and wreck a lot of American democratic process in mm -hmm. order to get there. And then there's the final part, which is uh, the focus of my focus on the lying, which is that there is a huge sales and spin campaign going on to misrepresent uh, what took place. Based on the testimony of the man behind the screen, Mr. Sufan, we were getting the truth out of uh, detainees using conventional questioning. Has, uh, in that uh, if-then and, and A-B kind of sequence, has the second part of the nightmare of that been proved that the detainees were then tortured not to get the truth out of them, that the truth was already coming out of them, but it was deliberately done to get lies out of them, that this was uh, to backfill this, this nonsensical connection between uh, al-Qaeda and Iraq? That can't be shown yet. Mm. All that we were able to show today was that the significant information came out. The first information so significant that they scrambled uh, private doctors from America to go and treat him mm -hmm. because the first information was so good they wanted more. The second was the identity of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, which was probably one of the biggest nuggets of information we've ever found. Yep. And the third was the identification of Jose Padilla, the so-called dirty bomb plotter, which was such a big deal at the time that you'll recall the Attorney General uh, Ashcroft had a press conference in Moscow about yes. it. They were so excited. All of this came out using traditional tactics. Every time they reverted to the harsh tactics, he shut down and they got nothing. And they went back and forth like a seesaw until finally he was so compromised by the harsh tactics that it no longer worked to deal with him through uh, responsible tactics. To Mr. Zelikow's memo that he referred to, the one that was ordered destroyed, he'll be on with Rachel Maddow in about an hour, and obviously we'll address that with her, but a State Department spokesman confirmed today that memo has, as he suspected, been found. Do I've you, seen it. You've seen it? Yeah. Is there anything you can share about it? No, it's still classified, but they're working towards uh, declassifying it, and I hope that they'll be able to accomplish that. Is it likely? Is it likely to happen quickly? I couldn't guess. I would, I mean, I, I couldn't guess. I, I would expect, it's not a very long memo, and it doesn't have a lot of stuff in it that I think requires classification. Mm -hmm. So concluding from that, I would say yes, but I don't want to light a fire under the State Department on this. They're being cooperative and... Um, I'll give them their time to do their process. And uh, I, I will avoid asking whether or not Mr. Zelikow is correct in his reminiscences about the memo, so, so it's to save you having to not answer that question. Uh, you said last night you're hoping to lay this foundation for an investigation. Are you satisfied that that part of your goal was, was accomplished today? We accomplished three things today. We showed that the factual predicates in the OLC memos about what had happened mm -hmm. were false. We showed that administration lawyers who got a look at the OLC opinions were horrified and tried to push back, and instead of engaging in a debate to see if they were right or wrong, they were just squelched and shut down. And we showed that by uh, the standards against which attorneys should be judged for malfeasance, uh, experts agree that the OLC opinions don't cut the mustard and that they uh, qualify for 
sanction. So there were three very good pieces of the case put in uh, today. Where, uh, where does this investigation go from here? Do you have more hearings scheduled? Do you anticipate a lengthy process? What are you planning to do? The next step, I expect, is the Office of Professional Responsibility report coming out on the Office of Legal Counsel. When that happens, I strongly suspect that my chairman, uh, Patrick Leahy of Vermont, who is spectacularly good and interested in this subject, Indeed he is. will hold hearings at the chairman level, which is where they belong for an issue of that magnitude. And then after that hearing takes place, uh, I'll ask for a second hearing to look at uh, other elements of this and continue going forward. So this is the beginning of an ongoing process. It is a vital one. Uh, I, I'm obviously not telling you anything, but I, I just uh, I hope that uh, your efforts on this uh, are met with with nothing but success, and that uh, we do see that that memo that you've already gotten to see. Thank you kindly, the chairman of the Judiciary Subcommittee on Administrative Oversight in the Courts, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island. Again, thanks for coming in. Thank you, sir. Etc. Etc. She's a guinea. And if she had been told that we were doing it, they did not brief us that these um, enhanced interrogations were taking place. They did not brief her. Now, in the world that we've grown accustomed to living in, these unequivocal statements are generally followed by go. New intelligence records show House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was briefed in September 2002 about the harsh interrogation techniques used during the Bush administration. Yes, Smithers. Excellent. <laughs> Let the inevitable dance begin again. At the time you were briefed, did you raise, raise objections? That it, it is not appropriate for me to talk about what happens at briefings. When the CIA says thick a lock, that lock is ticked. I'd open it if I could. Ah, what the f was opening? We were not, I repeat, re not told that waterboarding or any of these other enhanced interrogation methods were used. Okay, now that's it. I told you, I cannot discuss the briefings. No matter what methods you reporters use, I'm not saying another word. <laughs> Except to slowly begin to parse my unequivocal denial of never being told. Did you raise any objections, legal, moral, or otherwise? Well, they, it, that's not the point, Mike. The point is they come in to inform you of what they are doing. They don't come in to consult. They come in to notify. 
They come in to notify. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a wordsmith. But I think notify might mean told. What they did tell us is that they had some um, uh, legislative council, the Office of Legislative Council uh, opinions that they could be used, but not that they would. Ah, not that they would. <laughs> it's like when they come in and say, I can put eight golf balls in my mouth, then I gotta do it. <laughs> so uh, they said they could use harsh interrogation techniques, but not that they would. So basically we've gone from, I definitely was not told to, I was told, but they used an auxiliary verb with a slightly more passive mood. <laughs> Grammar nerds say what, what? Grammar nerds say what, what? Mike Allen of Politico walked his mother all the way home. Now she says, yes, she knew something about uh, waterboarding, but she decided to be quiet about it and let what? the then head of the intelligence committee, Jane Harmon, write a letter. There's one problem with this. Uh, she's not signed on the letter. Don't! <laughs> See, yeah, she was bothered by it, but she slept better knowing her friend was going to write a letter. It's good to know that Nancy Pelosi took torture as seriously as a don't cancel Chuck petition. <laughs> seriously, though, don't cancel Chuck. This is the show, and uh, we, we learn more day by day about um, what's been happening in the recent past. Uh, you may have heard the story about Philip Zellico, former counselor to Condi Rice and an uh, executive, uh, what was his title at the 9-11 Commission, executive director, something like that, staff director. Anyway, Philip Zellico uh, had written a memo back when he was working for Condi Rice Way back in 2005, this is history. I know. I should be looking forward. The future sucks. So he wrote a memo, I say, disputing the conclusions of the Bush Justice Department lawyers that torture was legal. Zellico disclosed, of course, in that same uh, blog post, that the White House attempted to collect and destroy all copies of that memo. He now tells uh, Mother Jones, Washington correspondent, he doesn't know for sure who in the White House ordered the suppression of his memo, but he says his supposition at the time was that the office of Vice President Dick Cheney was behind the cover-up. Murray Wass, investigative reporter, uh, writes about the tor so-called torture memos that were released a couple weeks ago by the Obama administration. Investigators have reviewed the emails traded between 
the drafters of those memos, Jay Bybee, John Woo, and another guy, as they drafted those uh, controversial legal opinions. In some instances, the drafts changed progressively over time to afford those who wanted to engage in aggressive interrogation techniques additional legal cover, according to people who have read the draft report from the Justice Department, which is still not yet out, the report from the Office of Professional Responsibility, which is going to be coming out. And it's been rumored not to recommend prosecution for Bybee, U. And I think Stephen Bradbury is the only one. One source indicated at least two of the earlier drafts were equivocal and nuanced, but noted over time they became more advocative of the views of then-Vice President Dick Cheney that aggressive inter- interrogation techniques were necessary to prevent new terror attacks. Another clue? The Washington Post reports this week former Bush administration officials have launched a behind-the-scenes campaign to urge Justice Department leaders to soften that not-yet-released ethics report, according to two sources, who insist on anonymity because, you know, the knees, the knees, ladies and gentlemen. It could not be determined how many former officials had reached out to people in the Obama Justice Department. The effort began in recent weeks. So we don't know who, re- who who's part of that effort, but um, we have some clues. And for more information, we might have to go, you know, below ground where the trash is buried. Next, intimate tales of America's first underground vice president. The action-packed diary of the man who was just a heartbeat away from history. Dick Cheney, confident, 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 confident. I admit it, at times I'm a sentimental kind of sap. The idea of the little guys, the Scooter Libbies, the John Hughes, taking all the hits from folks who think endangering their country is a fun way to spend an afternoon. That idea makes my blood boil worse than an overheating pacemaker episode. It's the job of the big guys to speak up for them before all their service to the country becomes ground up like so much Democrat roadkill. Say what you will about George Tenet. And I personally think his failure to keep his agency from leaking against then-President Bush was borderline treason. But he's standing up for his people in this so-called torture, so-called debate. If I did any less for my people, I'd feel shabbier than Greyhound bus upholstery. Also, like I say, I'm a sentimental kind of cuss. I cherish the idea of seeing the cherry blossoms each springtime without the intervening distraction of prison bars. So, while my one-time constituent-in-chief busies himself with nothing more strenuous than choosing the spittoons for his library, I've decided to do the heaviest lifting since FDR married Eleanor and initiate Operation It's Not Torture and It Works. On the one hand, there's been the work the public sees, the face the nations, the Fox Newses, the phone calls to Rush Limbaugh. Those dog-and-pony spectacles are torture, at least for me so I hope they work. Far more up my alley is the work I'm doing on the dark side. The encounters that happen when they shut off the lights, power down the cameras, roll up the backdrop, put the lavalier microphones back in their protective pouches, 
In short, the meeting's so private they don't even show up on my secret service logs. Of course, since we kept our entire visitor roster for eight years off those logs, that's... That's kind of chopsticks to this, Clyburn. The Justice Department was about to stop sitting on a report from their ethics cops. Now, asking any lawyer about ethics is like asking a starlet directions to the art museum. The initial attraction of the idea isn't worth the eventual aggravation. This report could render my whole interrogation technique enhancement team unemployable. So, I took the stealth limo downtown for a little visit to the new attorney general, Mr. Holder, just to deliver a friendly reminder about the power of the former incumbency. Thursday, 3.17 p.m. Oh, Mr. Vice President, uh, so good of you to insist on stopping by. Mr. Attorney General, two things. First, I'm pleased you made time to see me. And two, let's cut the crap. Well, frankly, I thought a little bit more crap might be appropriate, but uh, all right. What's on your mind? Look, you've got these so-called professional responsibility people preparing to smear some very dedicated public servants whose so-called crime was nothing more than realizing just how flexible the Geneva Conventions really are. At a time when we may need the ability to detain people for indefinite periods of time, you're threatening to have a chilling effect on the operation of those particular coolers. I, I see where this is going. Correction. It's already gotten there. Fine. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this, Mr. Vice President. Mm -hmm. I'm not in the business of reaching down into the bureaucracy and influencing professional decisions. Frankly, I, I think that's something that previous administration might well have been advised to do less of. Here's something I think you might be well advised to do. Get yourself a new vase. This one just broke. <laughs> don't, don't you think this kind of behavior is just a tad juvenile? Mr. Holder, the only time I play games is when I testify before the so-called Congress. <laughs> one of the little things I did during my time in the vice presidency was to sprinkle certain very avid proponents of my particular political philosophy throughout the middle levels of government. Career positions. They're still there. Hmm. You could call them sleeper cells if you wanted to be crass enough to quote our terrorist friends. <laughs> These folks have the power, among other things, to wreak havoc with an agency's information systems. Much more than that report could disappear in a nanosecond. Hate for you to have to spend most of your first year cleaning up that kind of mess. Wouldn't you? Wouldn't I hate to? That's right. Actually, you can ask my wife. I, I do a lot of the cleaning up around the house. Strangely, it relaxes me. Mm -hmm. In any case, that opinion is being subjected to a stringent professional process at the moment. I think that's all that any of us should really desire. I understand that, Mr. Attorney General. Good. I understand one thing more. In the opinion of people who care about this country's safety, that process needs to be a little less professional and a lot more stringent. Otherwise, I might have to send my associate David Addington down here to deal with that pesky matching lamp. You're, uh, you're playing a pretty tough hand, Mr. Trainey. I should, Mr. Holder. I dealt the cards. <laughs> Look, no decisions needed today. Just give my people a call when Uncle Sam is ready to say uncle. Well, I will say this. Uh, 
That report could use a little more fine-tooth vetting. Of course it could. Any report can. Thanks for your time, Mr. Attorney General, and uh, don't bother showing me out. No? No, sir. I wasn't ever here. All in all, not the most unsatisfying part of my day. After all, my next project was calling into Michael Savage. End of partial diary for early May 2009. Sincerely yours, Dick Cheney. Confidential. Confidential. Jesse Ventura, because he's going to talk about torture, too, and a host of other things that I found to be interesting. Uh, you know, I know that, he, you know, I talk about conspiracy theories and strange dudes. Uh, Jesse's one of those guys. He makes so much sense 80% of the time, at least. And there's a good 5 to 20% of the time when you go, hmm, I'm not sure I see where that's coming from, right? Uh, now, given I just started with that kind of speculation in the show, so I'm one to talk. But having said that, uh, when he makes sense, he makes great sense. And he says it clearly and sharply, and without equivocation, that's absolutely refreshing to watch. Because, you know, so much on TV is so fake, and everyone is so guarded. But when the body comes on, when Jesse Ventura lands one on top of your head from off the top rope, you know something... Refreshing has arrived. So they're going to talk about, uh, Larry King's going to ask him about uh, torture and waterboarding and whether it's torture. And Jesse Ventura is going to have very clear answers. Clip number two. I, I'm bothered over Guantanamo because it seems we've created our own Hanoi Hilton. Yeah. And you, we can live with that. I have a problem. I, I, I will criticize President Obama on this level. It's a good thing I'm not president because I would prosecute every person that was involved in that torture. I would prosecute the people that did it. I would prosecute the people that ordered it because torture is against the law. And you were a Navy SEAL. That's right, and I was waterboarded. So I know at, at SEER school, survival, escape, resistance, evasion, it was a required school you had to go to prior to going into the combat zone, which in my era was Vietnam. All of us had to go there. We were all, in essence, every one of us was waterboarded. It is torture. Now what's it like? It's drowning. 
It gives you the complete sensation that you are drowning. And it's no good because you, I'll put it to you this way. You give me a waterboard, Dick Cheney, and one hour, and I'll have him confess to the Sharon Tate murders. <laughs> Even though you know it's a, it's not going to happen, even though before it you know you're not going to drown. I mean, you, you don't know, know it. If it's if know? it's done wrong, you certainly could drown. You could swallow your tongue. You could do a whole bunch of stuff to you. If if it's done wrong, or or it's torture, Larry. It's you, torture. How much clearer did the man need to be? Uh, at the end of that interview, he went back to that topic and said, "Look, they did." Do, to us under very controlled circumstances and even that didn't make any sense at the end of it you know at the end of our careers we look back and they, we said why the hell did they do this SEER program in the first place and so there's there's not much value in it and they shouldn't do it uh, he said but understand they did it to us you know again very controlled very very limited and we knew when it was going to be over now if it's not that tightly controlled and the medical uh, doctors that were on board for this uh, waterboarding down in Guantanamo Bay and other places say they did not do it the way the SEER program outlined. Uh, they uh, covered both the mouth and the nose. They poured in a lot more water. Uh, the, of course, the detainees did not know that it was going to end, did not know that they were not going to drown. And on top of all that, they did it 183 times. So there is no ands, ifs, or buts. As Ventura says also in this interview, it is plain old illegal. I don't care why you thought it might or might not work. That is irrelevant. What you did was a crime, and if Ventura was in charge, you'd be in prison right now. It makes me think I wish he was, at least in that regard. Now he's going to talk about Cheney, uh, the guy who did order this. We're going to go to clip number four, guys. Uh, Larry King asks him Limbaugh versus uh, Colin Powell. Ventura just ignores the Limbaugh part of the question because he's got to get something vent off his chest about Dick Cheney. Let's watch. What do you make of the Cheney Limbaugh? Limbaugh should, is a better Republican well, than Powell. Well, you know, Powell. I don't have a lot of respect for Dick Cheney. Here's a guy who got five deferments from the Vietnam War. Clearly he's a coward. He wouldn't go when it was his time to go, and now he's a chicken hawk. Now he's this big tough guy who wants this hardcore policy, and he's the guy that sanctioned all this torture by calling it enhanced interrogation. You think Rush Limbaugh is a better Republican than Colin Powell? No. Not at all. Uh, in fact, uh, if you compare the two, let's look at Colin Powell, who's a war hero, who strapped it on for his country Twice. and didn't run and hide. And then you look at Dick Cheney, who ran and hid. Well, I have no respect for Dick Cheney. I have tremendous respect for General Powell. Ventura, off the top rope! Elbow from the sky! See, God, I love that, man. On the other hand, Liz Cheney is on MSNBC for 25 goddamn minutes, and they're all playing patty cakes with her. They're like, well, your dad was a great American, and we really appreciate his service, and he's so fantastic. And you know what? Shouldn't he be talking to the White House and the White House listening to him more? That's what they went around and around and around on Morning Joe for 25 minutes doing that with Liz Cheney. I was thinking, man, somebody let Ventura in the room. Come on, man, let him in there. As Cheney, as Liz Cheney was defending uh, torture and her father, the use of torture. Come on, man. It, it, you can tell what the truth is because it comes blaring out of the TV. It's so unique. It's so rare that you see it on TV. So you're like, wow, that was 
That was nice. That was like a nice, cool shower, uh, as opposed to the nonsense that you see in other places. I hear the gays go to San Francisco. That's so far away from here. School's a jail. At home I failed. A life of pain and fear. Deep water pulling me down. Deep water afraid I'll drown. Fleet Week here in New York, and uh, this is really the only time of year that I think to myself, I might look good with a shaved head. <laughs> Nation, you know, I've said this for years, I think newspapers are an important part of our lives. Not to read, of course. <laughs> but when you're moving, you can't wrap your dishes in a blog. Trust me, it's a mess. But these days, there is a big kerfuffle over the Philadelphia Inquirer. You see, they recently hired John Yoo, the architect of the Bush administration's interrogation memos justifying torture as an op-ed columnist. He had all the qualifications they were looking for in that they were afraid to tell him no. <laughs> well, the liberal complainosphere has opened the outrage spigot with headlines like, you can't be serious, you must be joking, and you shook me all night long. Wow. I gotta tell you, for people who claim to be against torture, they're doing some pretty unspeakable things to the English language. Now, Harold Jackson, the paper's editorial page editor, justified the hiring, saying, quote, we made a conscious effort to add some conservative voices to our mix. And clearly, the only conservatives available were John Yu and 15th century Spanish inquisitor Tomas de Torquemada. <laughs> and Torquemada still uses word perfect. <laughs> but the real question here is why is Harold Jackson justifying hiring John Yu when he just hired the world's greatest justifier? I mean, this dude could justify selling dolphin kebabs at a PETA convention. <laughs> I mean, I cannot wait till you hits his justifying stride. We'll be seeing columns in the Inquirer like, technically, it was the condom that was cheating. <laughs> Taking candy from a baby, it's not like the baby paid for it. And, oh, so now it's my fault kittens in a sack can't swim. Thanks for listening, everybody. Boy, there is a lot of talk about torture going on, so much so that I uh, I really can't even keep up with it. And and there's so much great material that I need to get out. I'm I'm considering putting out some bonus shows in the feed, uh, you know, more than just one a week. And so, you know, just to just to warn you, there's uh, there's gonna be plenty more talk on torture coming up, um, which we all love to hear about. And, uh, 
and so I'm I'm gonna be working on that to to put that out because uh, there's just there's too much going on to keep it from you, and uh, and I don't want I don't want to have nothing but torture week after week. So I'm thinking about uh, slipping in some some bonus shows in the middle there. Just wanted to warn you on that so you could be checking your feed uh, during the middle of the week. Be expecting uh, something to come out a little bit sooner than usual. Speaking of checking your feed, though, for anyone, anyone, anyone who does not uh, subscribe to the podcast feed, you still listen to the show, you know, maybe check the website every once in a while, download the new episode. Anyone in that situation, I implore you, sign up for the newsletter. And uh, to do that, just go to the website, bestoftheleft.com, click the button for the newsletter. And even if you don't want to receive any actual emails from us, you can just receive email notifications for every new episode that comes out. It's just, it's a really easy way to be notified for whatever reason that your personal situation makes it better for you to get a notification like that. It's super simple, non-invasive. You know, we, we let you pick exactly the amount of uh, email you want to receive from us. And so you can sign up to be notified of new episodes and, uh, never miss one besides the uh, newsletter other ways to connect with us i'm uh, you know i was a huge twitter mm, i'm gonna say skeptic and i gotta say i'm getting convinced i'm uh, i'm starting to like it and I'm starting to use it a little bit more and if you're into that thing well you know what if you're not why don't you check it out from someone who was like many of you a skeptic i would say check it out and you may find it useful as I have. Then, if you're into that sort of thing, go ahead and uh, follow Best of the Left. That is our uh, screen name there. You can find the link through our website and um, get all of our micro updates as we go. And as long as we're talking about the new media landscape, check out Facebook as well. Right next to the Twitter link on the website, uh, just become a fan of our page on Facebook and help spread the word that way. Now, the exciting thing I wanted to mention before we go, you know, I got plenty to talk about, but I'm going to wait for another day when I have a little bit more time. Uh, the exciting thing today is that I just went to the news and politics section of the podcast directory in iTunes and bang, right there above the fold of the page, right at the top, best of the left is listed in the featured section of the news and politics category in iTunes. Obviously, we're on the radar. They are hip to our jive right now. So I want to ask you very seriously and sincerely, go put in a good review for us at iTunes right now. You know, think of us as climbing the mountain, getting close to the top. And if we can push them over that tip, I would love to see us listed on the homepage of the podcast section uh, you know, at like the top of the page where thousands and thousands of people go and, and they put big promotions up there. I would love to be there instead of just relegated to the news and politics section. So if we can get their attention with a nice flood of new reviews, uh, I think I think we could do that. So uh, your help on that would be greatly appreciated. So that's it for today. I don't want to talk your ear off. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Thought lines now black and white, so took
picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Of shadow bases that fall 